Section 16. The Normal Man, the Old Timer, the Plain, of On a Chinese Screen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. On a Chinese Screen by W. Somerset Maugham. Chapters 44 to 46. Chapter 44. The Normal Man. I was once obliged to study anatomy, a very dreary business, since there is neither rhyme nor reason for the vast number of things you have to remember. But one remark made by my teacher, when he was helping me in the dissection of a thigh, has always remained in my memory. I was looking in vain for a certain nerve, and it needed his greater skill to discover it in a place in which I had not sought it. I was aggrieved because the textbook had misled me. He smiled and said, You see, the normal is the rarest thing in the world. Although he spoke of anatomy, he might have spoken with equal truth of man. The casual observation impressed itself upon me as many a profounder one has not, and all the years that have passed since then, with the increasing knowledge of human nature which they have brought, have only strengthened my conviction of its truth. I have met a hundred men who seemed perfectly normal, only to find in them presently an idiosyncrasy so marked as to put them almost in a class by themselves. It has entertained me not a little to discover the hidden oddity of all men to all appearances most ordinary. I have been often amazed to come upon a hideous depravity in men who you would have sworn were perfectly commonplace. I have at last thought the normal man as a precious work of art. It has seemed to me that to know him would give me that peculiar satisfaction which can only be described as aesthetic. I really thought I had found him in Robert Webb. He was a counsel in one of the smaller ports, and I was given a letter to him. I heard a good deal about him on my way through China, and I heard nothing but good. Whenever I happened to mention that I was going to the port in which he was stationed, somebody was sure to say, You'll like Bob Webb. He's an awfully good chap. He was no less popular as an official than he was as a private person. He managed to please the merchants because he was active in their interests, without antagonizing the Chinese, who praised his firmness, or the missionaries who approved his private life. During the Revolution, by his tact, decision, and courage, he had not only saved from great danger the foreign population of the city in which he then was, but also many Chinese. He had come forward as a peacemaker between the warring parties, and by his ingenuity he had been able to bring about a satisfactory settlement. He was marked down for promotion. I certainly found him a very engaging fellow. Though he was not good-looking, his appearance was pleasing. He was tall, perhaps a little more than of average height, well covered without being fat, with a fresh complexion inclined now, for he was nearly fifty, to be somewhat bloated in the morning. This was not strange, for in China the foreigners both eat and drink a great deal too much, and Robert Webb had a healthy liking for the good things of life. He kept an excellent table. He liked eating in company, and it was seldom that he did not have one or two people to tiffin or to dinner with him. His eyes were blue and friendly. He had the social gifts that give pleasure. He played the piano quite well, but he liked the music that other people liked and he was always ready to play a one-step or a waltz if others wanted to dance. With a wife, a son, and a daughter in England he could not afford to keep racing ponies, but he was keenly interested in racing. He was a good tennis player, and his bridge was better than average. 
Unlike many of his colleagues, he did not allow himself to be overwhelmed by his position, and in the evening at the club he was affable and unaffected. But he did not forget that he was His Britannic Majesty's Counsel, and I admired the skill with which, without portentousness, he preserved the dignity which he thought necessary to his station. In short, he had very good manners. He talked agreeably, and his interests, though somewhat ordinary, were varied. He had a nice sense of humor. He could make a joke and tell a good story. He was very happily married. His son was at Charterhouse, and he showed me a photograph of a tall, fair lad in flannels, with a frank and pleasant face. He showed me also the photograph of his daughter. It is one of the tragedies of life in China that a man must be separated for long periods from his family, and owing to the war, Robert Webb had not seen his for eight years. His wife had taken the children home when the boy was eight and the girl eleven. They had meant to wait till his leave came, so that they could all go together, but he was stationed in a place that suited neither of the children, and he and his wife agreed that she had better take them at once. His leave was due in three years, and then he could spend twelve months with them. But when the time for this came, the war broke out, and the consular staff was short-handed, and it was impossible for him to leave his post. His wife did not want to be separated from young children. The journey was difficult and dangerous. No one expected the war to last so long, and one by one the years passed. My girl was a child when I saw her last, he said to me when he showed me the photograph. Now she is a married woman. When are you going on leave? I asked him. Oh, my wife's coming out now. But don't you want to see your daughter? I asked. He looked at the photograph again, and then looked away. There was a curious look in his face, a somewhat peevish look, I thought, and he answered, I've been away from home too long now. I shall never go back. I leaned back in my chair, smoking my pipe. The photograph showed me a girl of nineteen with wide blue eyes and bobbed hair. It was a pretty face, open and friendly, but the most noticeable thing about it was a peculiar charm of expression. Bob Webb's daughter was a very alluring young person. I liked that engaging audacity. It was rather a surprise to me when she sent along that photograph, he said presently. I'd always thought of her as a child. If I'd met her in the street, I shouldn't have known her. He gave a little laugh that was not quite natural. It isn't fair. When she was a child, she used to love being petted. His eyes were fixed on the photograph. I seemed to see them in a very unexpected emotion. I can hardly realize she's my daughter. I thought she'd come back with her mother, and then she wrote and said she was engaged. He looked away now, and I thought there was a singular embarrassment in the downturned corners of his mouth. I suppose one gets selfish out here. I feel awfully sore. But I gave a big dinner party to all the fellows here the day she was married, and we all got blind. He gave an apologetic laugh. I had to, you know, he said awkwardly. I had such an awful hump. What's the young man like? I asked. She's awfully in love with him. When she writes to me, her letters are all about nothing else. There was an odd quaver in his voice. It's a bit thick to bring a child into the world, and to educate her, and be fond of her, and all that sort of thing just for some man whom you've never even seen. I've got his photograph somewhere. I don't know where it is. I don't think I'd care about him very much. He helped himself to another whiskey. He was tired. He looked old and bloated. He said nothing for a long time, and then suddenly he seemed to pull himself together. Well, thank God her mother's coming out soon. 
I don't think he was quite a normal man, after all. Chapter 45 The Old Timer He was seventy-six years old. He had come to China when he was little more than a boy, as second mate of a sailing vessel, and had never gone home again. Since then he had been many things. For long years he had commanded a Chinese boat that ran from Shanghai to Ichang, and he knew by heart every inch of the great and terrible Yangtze. He had been a master of a tug at Hong Kong, and had fought in the ever-victorious army. He had got a lot of loot in the boxer troubles, and had been in Hankow during the revolution, when the rebels shelled the city. He had been married three times, first to a Japanese woman, then to a Chinese, and finally, when he was hard upon fifty, to an English woman. They were all dead now, and it was the Japanese who lingered in his memory. He would tell you how she arranged the flowers in the house in Shanghai, just one chrysanthemum in a vase, or a sprig of cherry blossom, and he always remembered how she held a teacup, with both hands, delicately. He had had a number of children, but he took no interest in them. They were settled in the various ports of China, in banks and shipping offices, and he seldom saw them. He was proud of his daughter by his English wife, the only girl he ever had, but she had married well and was gone to England. He would never see her again. The only person now for whom he had any affection was the boy who had been with him for five and forty years. He was a little wizened Chinaman, with a bald head, slow of movement and solemn. He was well over sixty. They quarreled incessantly. The old-timer would tell the boy that he was past his work and that he must get rid of him, and then the boy would say that he was tired of serving a mad foreign devil. But each knew that the other did not mean a word he said. They were old friends, old men both of them, and they would remain together till death parted them. It was when he married his English wife that he retired from the water and put his savings into a hotel, but it was not a success. It was a little way from Shanghai, a summer resort, and it was before there were motor-cars in China. He was a sociable fellow, and he spent too much of his time in the bar. He was generous, and he gave away as many drinks as were paid for. He also had the peculiar habit of spitting in the bath, and the more squeamish of his visitors objected to it. When his last wife died he found it was she who had kept things from going to pieces, and in a little while he could no longer bear up against the difficulty of his circumstances. All his savings had gone into buying the place, now heavily mortgaged, and in making up the deficit year by year. He was obliged to sell out to a Japanese, and having paid his debts at the age of sixty-eight, found himself without a penny. But, by God, sir, he was a sailor. One of the companies running boats up the Yangtze gave him a berth as chief officer. He had no master's certificate, and he returned to the river which he knew so well. For eight years he had been on the same run. And now he stood on the bridge of his trim little ship, not so large as a penny steamer on the Thames, a gallant figure upright, and slender as when he was a lad, in a neat blue suit, and the company's cap set haughtily on his white hair, with his pointed beard nattily trimmed. Seventy-six years old, it is a great age. With his head thrown back, his glasses in his hand, the Chinese pilot by his side, he watched the vast expanse of the winding river. A fleet of junks with their high sterns, their square sails set, descended on the swift current, and the rowers chanted a monotonous chant as they worked at their creaking oars. The yellow water in the setting sun was lovely with pale soft tints. It was as smooth as glass, 
and along the flat banks the trees and the huts of a bedraggled village, hazy in the heat of the day, were now silhouetted sharply, like the shadows of a shadowgraph, against the pale sky. He raised his head as he heard the cry of wild geese, and he saw them flying high above him in a great V, to what far lands he knew not. In the distance, against the sunlight, stood a solitary hill crowned with temples. Because he had seen all this so often, it affected him strangely. The dying day made him think, he knew not why, of his long past and of his great age. He regretted nothing. By George, he muttered, I've had a fine life. CHAPTER Forty Six: THE PLAIN The incident was of course perfectly trivial, and it could be very easily explained, but I was surprised that the eyes of the spirit could blind me so completely to what was visible to the eyes of sense. I was taken aback to find how completely one could be at the mercy of the laws of association. Day after day I had marched along the uplands, and to-day I knew that I must come to the great plain in which lay the ancient city whither I was bound. But when I set out in the morning, there was no sign that I approached it. Indeed, the hills seemed no less sheer, and when I reached the top of one, thinking to see the valley below, it was only to see before me one steeper and taller yet. Beyond, climbing steadily, I could see the white causeway that I had followed so long, shining in the sunlight as it skirted the brow of a rugged, tawny rock. The sky was blue, and in the west hung here and there little clouds, like fishing-boats becalmed towards evening off Dungeness. I trudged along, mounting all the time, alert for the prospect that awaited me, if not round this bend, then round the next. And at last, suddenly, when I was thinking of other things, I came upon it. But it was no Chinese landscape that I saw, with its paddy fields, its memorial arches, and its fantastic temples with its farmhouses set in a bamboo grove, and its wayside inns where under the banyan trees the poor coolies may rest them of their weary loads. It was the valley of the Rhine, the broad plain all golden in the sunset. The valley of the Rhine with its river, a silvery streak running through it, and the distant towers of worms. It was the great plain upon which my young eyes rested, when, a student in Heidelberg, after walking long among the fir-clad hills above the old city, I came out upon a clearing, and because I was there first conspicuous of beauty, because there I knew the first glow of the acquisition of knowledge, each book I read was an extraordinary adventure, because there I first knew the delight of conversation, oh, those wonderful commonplaces which each boy discovers as though none had discovered them before, because of the morning stroll in the sunny Onlaga, the cakes and coffee which refreshed my abstemious youth at the end of a strenuous walk, the leisurely evenings on the castle terrace, with the smoky blue haze over the tumbled roofs of the old town below me, because of Goethe and Heine and Beethoven and Wagner and, why not, Strauss with his waltzes, and the beer garden where the band played and the girls with yellow plates walked sedately, because of all these things, recollections which have all the force of the appeal of sense. To me, not only does the word plain mean everywhere and exclusively the valley of the Rhine, but the only symbol for happiness I know is a wide prospect, all golden in the setting sun, with a shining stream of silver running through it, like the path of life, or like the ideal that guides you through it, and far away, 
the gray towers of an ancient town. End of chapter 46